1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we begin in verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And you can be seated. So I wanted to read the passage from last week, verses 4 through 9, uh, because I wanted you guys to see sort of the contrast and attitude and heart between last week and what we're going to cover this week in verses 10 and following. We saw last week where Paul was genuinely thankful for the church in Corinth. He thanked God for, for many things. They had every spiritual gift imaginable, and every spiritual gift imaginable poured out in the greatest measure. This was a very gifted church in the sense of, of the Spirit working in them to, uh, to serve one another. Um, they also had the privilege of having some of the very best leaders that the church had ever known, really, in all of church history. They had the Apostle Paul, who was the missionary uh, church planter, one of the best preachers of the gospel in the New Testament. They had Apollos, which if you remember from the book of Acts, Apollos is mighty in what? The scriptures. He's a powerful preacher, very powerful preacher. Uh, they've had Cephas, which is actually another name for the Apostle Peter. Later in the book, they, Paul talks about how he's going to send Timothy their way to go minister to the church at Corinth. Timothy was another great pastor and preacher himself. They had Silas, who was a great leader. Remember, when this church started, there were two synagogue leaders that basically defected from the synagogue, had faith in Jesus, and now they are a part of this church at Corinth. I mean, these guys were stacked in terms of leadership. They had the very best leaders that we could ever imagine. Uh, this coming March, I was actually planning to go down to California to the Shepherds Conference. They postponed it, um, which is a little bit of a bummer. But one of the blessings of being there is, is you get all of these amazing leaders and, and preachers from, from all around the country. It's like being at spiritual Disneyland for like three or four days. It's really amazing. It's, it's just awesome. You're, it's poured in and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I mean, just, just imagine like, like, like having that at your church basically every week. 
I mean, take your top five preachers, whoever they are, and just imagine that they were rolling through here all the time. And you could listen to them all the time. Like, you just had to drive 10 minutes away. And that was it. Like, it's like the best preachers that you've ever heard. All This is Corinth. All the time they had these preachers. And sadly, rather than learn and grow from them, what began to happen is they started dividing over them. Dividing over who their favorite preacher was. This is actually a huge problem in Corinth. It's so much of a problem, Paul actually deals with the issue of division over leaders the first four chapters of this book. 25% of Corinthians is dealing with how to rightly view leaders so that there's no division in the church. I don't know if you think about that when you've, when you've read through Corinthians, but that's really, that's really the issue. And I just want to show you this in a couple of different ways. So look over at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul is downplaying his role as a preacher. So he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, when I initially came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's like, I didn't want you clamoring after me. And so I, I didn't try to make my, my speeches and my sermons all that eloquent. I just preached the gospel. And you know what happens when you preach the gospel under those circumstances and people come to faith in Jesus? You are assured they didn't come to faith because of you. They came to faith because of the truth of the gospel. This is actually pretty encouraging. I don't know, especially some of you guys who are preaching the gospel at camp and you're like, did I get it out just right? Did I, did I smooth it out? You know what? As long as you get the truths of the gospel out in some sort of order... It's the Spirit's job to work from there. And if they come to faith, despite this jumbled mess of a gospel message that you that you proclaim, you know who gets all the glory? God gets all the glory. That's what Paul is saying. I wasn't trying to be eloquent. I wasn't trying to be fancy. I was just preaching the basic gospel message because I knew if I pre- preached the basic gospel message and you came to faith in Jesus, that would be a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to bring you to faith. I didn't want you clamoring over people. Look over at chapter 3. There's still still stuff to address. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, like mature people. I couldn't address you like that. But as people of the flesh, as, as infants, as babies in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not the flesh of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants are literally slaves through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. You see what he's getting at? It's like you're, you're planting over these people. One plants, one waters, but it's God who does all the work. He's still talking about the issue of division. Look down in chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Again, still talking about this issue. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. What's he saying? He's saying as much as we might like our leaders, as much as we might like our favorite preachers, as much as we like the people that we look up to, at the end of the day, they're just slaves. That's all they are. They're just slaves doing what God has called them to do in the body of Christ. And when we start putting too much importance on them rather than on Jesus, we're going to get all out of sorts and there's going to be division. Even goes, he even goes on in chapter four to talk about how even their favorite leaders are subject to judgment. And he'll say in chapter four, verse 13, that apostles especially, they are the scum of the world. When you're clamoring over your favorite apostle, you are clamoring over scum. That's what you're excited about, scum. That's what he says. We have to know not only our place in the kingdom, but we have to know the place of the leaders that we follow in the kingdom as well. And I think this is crucial for us even today, maybe more so, because we have access to all these different preachers and all of these different teachers. We just download the click of a button and get your, your favorite guy. Just no problem. And all of a sudden we can become like them and, and we're, our whole ministry and our mindset is shaped by them and we start exalting people rather than Jesus. It, it happens very easily. It can divide based on our favorite personality. And I just, I need to say, I realize that especially as your pastor, I can have a large influence in your life. And to some extent, that's a good thing. Sheep and shepherd, there's, there's, there's a relationship there. That's a good thing. But you have to know my place in the kingdom. It's not exalted. I'm a servant of Jesus for your good. It's good that maybe you like me. I, I like people to like me. I don't like people to not like me. But that has to be checked. Be very careful. We can easily start idolizing people, not even knowing that. So the big picture this morning is stop looking at leaders and start looking at Jesus. That's the big picture. Stop looking at your favorite leader and start looking at Jesus. Are you aligning yourself more with your favorite leader, your favorite preacher, your favorite author, your favorite apostle, the favorite book in the Bible, than you are with the Lord who saved you? Because if you are, and we all have that tendency, that's a recipe for disaster. So here's how that plays out this morning. I'm going to break this into four sections. And they're all about unity, how to be unified in the church. There's the appeal for unity. We'll look at that first. There's the hindrance to unity, the truth that brings unity, and the practice of unity. And I'll, I'll repeat those for you. So the appeal for unity, hindrance to unity, the truth that brings unity in the practice. So here's the appeal. Here's the appeal for unity in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So 
we have Paul appealing for unity. Actually, that, that word appeal is the word that he uses. It's not directly a command. And he could command it, and I think it has the force of a command, but I, I, I think it's a little bit more gentle than that. I think this is actually very pastoral, especially in times of difficulty, to appeal to people for something rather than just simply command them or demand them. It kind of diffuses the situation. If people are already worked up anyway and you start throwing down commands, a lot of times it just makes the whole thing worse. If you appeal to them, they know what the command is. That's why you're appealing, right? So it's it's gentler. It's softer. He's, he's appealing to them gently as a pastor, as their founding pastor. It's a way to sort of de-escalate this very volatile situation. And notice what he does. He appeals to them what? Brothers. He appeals to them based on their common family heritage in Christ. I appeal to you brothers. There's there's actually two things he appeals to. The first is brothers. He's, He's saying, look, you guys are family. Through faith in Jesus, we are one big family together in Christ that God has put together. Ultimately, the family unit is the most unified unit or should be the most unified unit in society. And that's what we are in Christ. Actually, our bond in Christ is stronger than our own genetic family together. Why? Because that union that we have in Christ is more precious even than the genetic bond that we might have with our other family. And we, and we see this, right, with every parent who wants their kids to stop fighting, like, stop fighting with your brothers, your family. What are you doing? Right? We appeal to them to stop fighting based upon their family connection. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. Don't be divided. Be united. Your family, your brothers, your brethren. You're together in Christ. You're on the same side. My success is your success. Your success is my success. The second appeal he makes is based on the Lord. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, there's the family, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the other appeal he's making. What does that mean? Appeal by the name of the Lord Jesus. What he's doing is he's invoking the authority of the Lord Jesus. You know, when you see like those old like like TV shows, the cop movies, you know, cops like chasing the bad guy and they're like, stop in the name of the law. What they're doing is they are telling this criminal, the law gives me authority to tell you to stop and you need to stop based on that law's authority. What he's doing is saying, I'm appealing to you brothers on the basis of the authority of Jesus to be unified. This is what Jesus wants. If Jesus were sitting right here, right now, he would say, the first thing that I want is for the church to be unified. That's the appeal he's making. Is bit on the basis of the authority of Jesus. And we know this is what Jesus wants. John 17, 21. Jesus prays to the Father that we might be one as he and the Father are one. That's tight. That's close. That's unified. That's not divisive. That's together. And by the way, that's not pie in the sky. Jesus doesn't pray pie in the sky prayers. He prays prayers to get answered, right? So it's not just, well, you know, I like to be one, but nobody's going to be one, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. This is actually a prayer that gets answered. And it gets answered through the self-sacrifice of God's people doing everything they can to bring themselves together and put divisions aside. In fact, this oneness among believers is one of the ways which people come to know the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
What Jesus wants is he wants a redeemed people who are so united that nothing stands in their way in that unity together. And people on the outside are like, wow, you've got people from like all walks of life. When, when you guys gather together on Sundays, like you've got Jew, you've got Gentile, you've got slave, you've got free, you've got Deer Park people, you've got Spokane people, you've you got all kinds of different people together all different backgrounds, all different educations, all different incomes, all different everything, and you're just together and you're unified? Yeah, that's the redeemed humanity that Jesus has put together to be a witness of his power in the whole world. It's actually evangelical in the sense of preaching the gospel when people see us unified together. It does the very opposite. It corrodes the gospel message when we're divided. That's what happens. So what does this unity entail? Just how unified do we need to be? Look again at verse 10. He says, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's three positives and there's one negative. So agree, be of the same mind and the same judgment. Those are the positives. And then the negative is do not have division. What does that mean? Does that mean we need to agree on absolutely every doctrinal detail and every life detail, lock, stop, absolutely no differences at all? Well, I don't think that's the case. That's not possible. And actually, the Bible gives us a lot of flexibility on, on what we can agree with or not. We all have to agree on what movies are appropriate or the same view of spiritual gifts or end times or whether we should social distance or not or whatever. No, there's there's some latitude in there. There's some latitude in the Bible for what we believe concerning those things. No, the one point that Paul wants the Corinthians to be unified in this context is their view of leaders. That's what he's getting at, is how they view leaders. That's how they need to be unified. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, stop dividing over your leaders. You should have the same mind about your leaders. You should agree about your leaders. That's the appeal. Have the same mind, same focus. And specifically here, the context is the leaders. There's, there's a lot of things that we should have the same mind on. But here the context is we need to have the same mind about our leaders. So we have the appeal for unity and then we have the hindrance to unity. Verses 10 through 12. Actually, we'll just look at verse 11. So, so here's the hindrance. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So Paul is making this appeal. He's talking about this because there's been this report that's come to him that there's division just over leaders. They are claiming to follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas or, or some of the super spiritual ones are like, I follow Jesus. All y'all are crazy. Actually, Paul will say later on in, in chapter 12 that there are some people who are more mature and who would just say they follow Jesus because that's actually the right answer, right? It's not these other people, but they're all, they're all factioned out. But he didn't hear this from the church. He heard this from an outside source, from from Chloe's people. Now, remember, this is sort of an interesting thing. Remember that Paul here is writing to this church, and he's actually responding to a letter that they wrote him. They're in Corinth. He's in Ephesus. And it seems like they had written him a letter, and they had some questions. And so there's this, like, almost bullet list throughout the, the letter of questions he's answering. 
So, so take a look over at chapter 7, verse 1 for just a second. This is where he starts answering their questions. So chapter 7, verse 1, he transitions in the letter and he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so then chapter 7 answers that issue. So they had written to Paul about whether or not a husband and a wife could be intimate together. And so he's responding to that. So take a look over at chapter 8. Next question that the Corinthians had asked about. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he goes on. How do they... they they deal with this issue of food that had been sacrificed to idols but had now been available on the meat market. If you went up you know, to go pick up a couple of pounds of hamburger from Yolks and you realize that actually the butcher had offered this cow on a pagan sacrifice to Baal, would you eat the burger? That's what they're dealing with. Do we eat the burger? Because if we eat the burger, is that like promoting Baal worship? That's what, they're, that's what they're wrestling with. So that's another bullet point. Chapter 12, verse 1. Here's another bullet point. Another question that he's responding to. Actually, there's a couple couple in here, but I just want to show you some main ones. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So they had written to him about spiritual gifts, specifically speaking in tongues and prophecy. And so he'll spend the next three chapters on that. There's also in chapter 16, verse 1, about a collection. He's going to come, and he's going to. he wants the church to collect money together, and he's going to go deliver it to other churches. And so he wanted to answer some questions about that. So the back half of the book is this, of, is this letter or these responses to a letter that they had written. Why is, why is that important? Because it seems like what they missed in sending this letter was, oh, uh, we, we forgot to tell you about just how divided we are about all our leaders. He didn't hear that from the letter. He heard it from Chloe's people. He's sitting there reading the letter, and they're like, hi, Paul, uh, this is the church in Corinth. We're fine. Um, we just got a couple of questions about spiritual gifts and marriage and stuff like that. Can you help us out? Oh, yeah, sure. And while he's, like, responding back, like, here comes Chloe's people, and Chloe's people are like, yeah, you can answer those if you want to, but they are nuts over there. They're dividing over Cephas and Apollos and Jesus. Like, they're all fractured. And he's like, oh, that's what's really going on in Corinth. Maybe we need to address that because they're not talking about it. And I think you guys know, but a lot of times when there is disunity in any sort of unit, whether a church or a family or whatever, there's not a lot of conversation about that. A lot of times you have to be told by some other outside source. You can have the, the, the front looking really good. I want to talk about this and this and this. And oh, actually, there's huge division. Okay, well. That's really actually the more important thing. That's why he doesn't even get to spiritual gifts. He doesn't get to tongues. He doesn't get to the collection. He doesn't get to even intimacy and marriage until they get the unity of the church figured out because that's how important it is to be unified together, to not be dividing over leaders. Paul will even get this to this in in just a little bit in chapter 1 where he says he doesn't want them wearing the Paul jersey. 
And Apollos wouldn't want them wearing the Apollo jersey. And, and, and Cephas wouldn't want them wearing a jersey that says Cephas. And I, God forbid, if you ever come in here with a Jason jersey on here, I would never want that. You need a Jesus jersey. That's who you need. That's who you rally behind. Paul's like, I'm so thankful that I didn't baptize any of you. Well, maybe a couple. Because I don't want you to think somehow like you're on Paul's team. You're not on Paul's team. You're on Jesus's team. That's whose team you're on. Anytime you start leaning towards someone else, like that's a problem. When I was in Bible college, uh, we would call people MacArthurites or Piperites because you could tell who was who was reading what, right? Just by the language that they use, they would start, you know, parody. And John MacArthur was my pastor. I love John MacArthur. He's a great guy, right? But you could tell when they were like overemphasizing the man rather than the savior. You just could. And I think MacArthur would be mortified to ever hear anybody be called a MacArthurite. He'd probably rebuke all of us. But that's what we call them because that's what's going on. Same thing with John Piper. There's also this interesting thing because Paul mentions baptism. He's glad he didn't baptize anybody. There's this interesting phenomenon when, when I got to, to Master's College of these kids who had been in church their whole life all of a sudden going, you know, I made a profession of faith when I was like, 14, 15, I got baptized, but I'm not really sure I was, I was saved then. And John's baptizing on Sunday night. So I'm going to go, I'm going to get baptized by John MacArthur. Now, I don't know their heart, right? Maybe some of them, that was really a deal. But I just wonder if John had been up there on Sunday night going, you know what? I'm not baptizing. Um, I'm handing that over all to my elders to no name men who can also preach the God. I wonder if there would have been less baptisms. I have to believe that there would have been less baptisms because I think there were some people who just wanted to have said that they got baptized by John MacArthur or John Piper or R.C. Sproul or pick your favorite guy. That's the kind of division that he's that he's trying to put down here. This is their hindrance to unity. Whenever we align ourselves with our favorite leader or preacher or pastor or whatever, just know they are a wretched sinner saved by the same grace you're saved by. That's it. The thing that you rally around is Jesus. So there's the appeal to be unified. There's the hindrance to unity. Number three, there's the truth that brings unity. And it's given in sort of three rhetorical questions, all of which the answer is no. So look at verse 13. Paul says, is Christ divided? Answer, no. Was Paul crucified for you? Answer, no. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Answer, no. The truth is that the thing that brings us unity together is rallying around Jesus. It's rallying around Christ. We don't even identify with an apostle. Isn't that amazing? Paul wrote a lot of books of the Bible. We don't identify with him. We don't identify with Peter or Moses or Matthew or Malachi. Or your favorite book in the Bible, whoever wrote that, Hebrews. You can argue about who wrote that. We don't identify with that person. We don't know who wrote it. We identify with Christ. That's our Lord. That's our, that's our Savior. We don't identify with Augustine or Aquinas or Luther or Calvin We don't identify with MacArthur or Sproul or Jason. Why? Because we are united by Jesus. That's who we unite under. 
That's who we unite under. There's only one body of Christ. There's not two. There's not three. There's not 473. There's one body of Christ united together under his headship. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church. He's the leader. He's the one that we go to. You can have favorite authors. You can have favorite pastors. You can have favorite preachers. I'm not telling you don't ever go listen to Vody again. Listen to Vody. He's great. Just don't align yourself with Vody. Don't call yourself a Vodyite or a MacArthurite or a Jasonite. You are a Christian. That's who you identify with. That's your, your whole life, your whole identity. Paul will say in chapter 12 that, that we are all different parts of one body. Christ is the head, unified together in him. Are we a little bit different? Yeah. Does the universal body of, of Christ, the, the Christians that meet all around Spokane County and all over the world, are we all a little bit different? Yeah. We're all kind of weird. And we're all kind of losers. We'll see later on that that's what brings us together is we have nothing to give God except, except the sin that, that needs forgiveness. But he brings us together and the only thing that we identify with is Jesus. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Answer, No. Christ is not divided. We're in Christ, therefore we're unified together. That's how it goes. Not only is Christ not divided, but our identity is in the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, was, was Paul crucified for you? The answer is, of course not. Paul wasn't crucified for you. Piper wasn't crucified for you. I ain't going to be crucified for you. I might be crucified for Jesus. But I know that Jesus was crucified for me. That's who we rally around. The, the, the Savior who died for us. I mean, can you imagine saying, yeah, you know, Jesus, he, he's good. He died for me. But I really like this author. This guy who writes words. That's who I'm identifying with. What sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense at all. No, we identify with the one who was crucified for us, who shed his blood for our sins. That's our rallying cry of unity. I don't think anyone would ever say that, but many times I think functionally that's what happens. And then he goes on, verse 13, is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And of course the answer is no. So when someone is baptized in obedience to Christ, they're actually doing a few things at the same time. First, they are identifying themselves with Jesus. Just as Jesus went into the grave and he came up out of the grave in his resurrection, so too Christians go into the water to symbolize death and they come out of the water to symbolize resurrection. We're saying just as as Jesus went into the grave and came up, so too I, because I'm united with him, I died and now I've been raised as well. And so it's a way to identify ourselves with Christ. Baptism is also a kind of prayer, Peter tells us. It's a prayer to God for a clean conscience. God, wipe away my sin. It's not the baptism that saves you, but it's that prayer of, of communion with God, of, of representing what has already, already happened in your heart. And so when someone is baptized, I, I literally say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they go down in the water they come up again. Why do, we, why do we use that formula? Well, that's what Matthew 28 tells us to do. But it's because the triune God is active in every single individual salvation. If you are saved, it's because the Father planned it. It's because the Son accomplished it. And because the Spirit applied that work to your account. 
So we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to acknowledge all of that. The three are the one God working to bring you to faith. I mean, wouldn't it be weird for me to say I baptize you in the name of Jason Upchurch? I mean, that's blasphemous and weird. Why, why would I do that? But that's kind of what these people functionally wanted to happen. I was baptized by Apollos, the man mighty in the scriptures. Well, good for you. Are you actually in Christ? Because that's what matters. That's what matters. So what do we do with all of this truth? The fourth is the practice of unity. We actually have to work at unity. I think you guys probably know that. Disunity happens naturally. We have to practice unity. Look at verses 14 through 17. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what do we learn here for coming together? The big takeaway is that all of us have to do things that might minimize our own self-importance and maximize the importance of Jesus in very practical ways. He does that in two practical ways here. First of all, when he was preaching the gospel, he didn't actually baptize all that much. He, he outsourced it to other capable people to baptize, probably the elders of the church. He baptized a few people, Crispus and Gaius, maybe a couple others. But that way they couldn't brag. See, Paul baptized me. See, MacArthur baptized me. Jason baptized me. No, no, no. The, the point is not who baptized you. The, the point is that you were baptized. And, and really that that physical expression is a spiritual reality that you are immersed into Jesus. That's what matters, not who performed the function. Does this mean it's wrong for pastors to baptize? No, I don't think so. That's a pattern that we see in the New Testament. Elders and pastors are the one who baptize, maybe deacons as well. But it's not important who baptizes you. It's just important that you're baptized. Because it's the connection to Jesus that you're showing. It's like when you go to a wedding. Do you really care who's performing it? No. You're staring at the bride and groom. And you want to see the vows. That's what you want. The guy who's performing it, they're just in another tux. You don't care. You want to see the show. That's the show. It's the baptism. That's the show. The sign that you've been saved. That's what you want to see. It doesn't matter who does it. So if I baptized you and I've forgotten that I did, I apologize. <laughs> I'm sorry. I remember being a young Christian reading this. I'm like, how did he actually forget? I've forgotten. I saw a picture this morning. I baptized Ellis. I forgot that. It was like when he was this tall. So that must have been like eight years ago because that was a long time ago. Like, oh, yeah, I baptized it. Like, wow, oh, I forgot about that. Like, why? Because you know what matters? Just that he got baptized. That he did this thing in obedience. The second that I think is really interesting, and this is important, is that Paul says that Christ did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is really interesting. Look at verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, wait a minute. Isn't following Jesus, isn't it important that we get baptized? And the answer, of course, is yes. 
But the thing that we need to note is that baptism is not intrinsic to the gospel. It's not intrinsic to salvation. That's the thing that I want to point out here. He's contrasting getting baptized with believing the gospel. Do you get that? So there are some people who say, well, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Paul says, Jesus didn't send me to go baptize. That's a big problem for them. Because what he's saying, if, if baptismal regeneration is true, is Jesus didn't save, send me to go save people. That's not what he's saying. He sent me to preach the gospel that saves. Once they're saved, then others can get baptized. But the important part is on the gospel, the message, and faith in that message. So should we get baptized? Of course. If you're following Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you need to be. It's an act of obedience to the Lord. It's an act of disobedience if you don't. But it's not a saving act. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Paul says he's glad he didn't baptize many people because that would have just added to the division. That would have just made the problem worse. And I think what this means practically is that if there are things that we are doing that brings undue attention to us, we need to... We need to Sub them out to other people. Let other people do it. Usually that's stuff up front. Usually that's preaching or music or or that sort of thing. But it could be other things too. One of the things that I don't like about going to conferences and meeting new pastors is that you have this nice dialogue for like two minutes, and then all of a sudden people start asking you questions about how you're different. Right? What kind of church do you go to? Oh, you believe that. Like, oh my goodness, what happened to the unity we just had like 30 seconds ago? Like, no, we need to emphasize those things that bring us together. Hey, tell me about how you came to faith in Jesus. Hey, tell me how you got baptized. What's the Lord doing that's encouraging in your life right now? What are you reading that's encouraging? What's the best book on Jesus you've read in the last year or two? Right? Things that build one another up. We need to find unity. Are there going to be differences between us? Of course there are. I'm sure we'll find them. But listen, our job when we're around other people is to do absolutely everything in our power to be unified together. To come around our commonality in Jesus. To be unified in Jesus. I mean, that's the power of the cross. It's to take Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, Methodists and Baptists and non-denominationals and bring them all together that we all might lift our voice in praise to the one who bled for us. Will there be those who want to divide? Of course. But that's on them. All we can do is what's on us. And strive to be unified. You guys, Christ is not divided His cross still stands as actually an incredible sign of unity that he has brought all people together through faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross that unites us. We pray forgiveness for when our hearts are divided, when we want to clamor over people or things or whatever, anything other than Jesus. May our hearts be knit together in Christ. May you do that work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.